0: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, it's time to to um, have our last formal presentation, to be followed by a panel discussion. And so, it's my great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Josh Havens, who is a pharmacologist at my place. He's associate clinical professor in the uh, College of Pharmacy at University of Nebraska, and was working in the hospital pharmacy when we recruited him to start working with us in the HIV clinic in 2015. Since then, he's just proved to be an invaluable member of the team. He's such a great resource for us in terms of every kind of pharmacology question for uh, the providers, the fellows, residents, students, uh, people outside the institution. He, uh, in addition to managing patients and helping us with their antiretroviral therapy, he's also running our pharmacist-led prevention program and doing most of the prep provision for our clinic. And he's done uh, incredibly well at that. I think it's a testament to how successful he's been, that you can find his phone number on the bathroom walls of most of the gay bars in Omaha, but he's also particularly come into his own during the rollout of long-acting antiretroviral therapy, both for prevention and treatment. And this is where he's just been an invaluable resource for us in how to navigate to actually get medicines for people that they are uh, really want. And so he's gonna to talk to us about the logistics of long acting treatment and prevention strategies, which as you know, from the beginning of this session were identified as a very important issue and potential barrier for many of the attendees. The title of his talk is Annoying but Necessary, Navigating the Operational Challenges of Long-Acting Treatment and Prevention Strategies. And so over to you, Josh.
1: Thank you very much for that intro. That's uh, way too kind on a lot of fronts. Um, I feel uh, very honored to be here as part of this um, speaking faculty. And I hope to really take a, what could be a very... uh, dry topic and make it somewhat less dry and if those of you that have questions or uh, concerns about this this part of the long-acting treatment implementation process hopefully we can dispel some of those um, questions so uh, these are my disclosures Um, throughout this talk really we're going to focus mainly on the logistics of long-acting treatments uh, namely Things around site readiness and logistics, billing, reimbursement, uh, patient expectations. So, kind of the full gamut, or more of a holistic approach around how you should develop a long, act, a long acting treatment um, program and how you can best, you know, successfully do that. Uh, before I before I get into the meat of the the talk here, I do want to just lay out a couple. Uh, Items here. So, um, for the majority of this talk, I'm only going to focus mainly on cabot- cabotegravir captagrilopivirine, cabotegravir for prep, and lenacapavir, and a lot of the complexities that are around long acting treatments have to do with the U.S. healthcare system. So, I'm mainly focusing it from a U.S. perspective. All right. So, just for a little background, um, and I'm I'm sure a lot of this has been covered with the other talks, but Uh, The preference for long-acting treatments has been pretty high. You know, patients that, at least in our clinic, there's a lot of patients that that are very interested in going on long-acting treatments, both for treatment and for prevention. And these are uh, some of the uh, larger clinical trials. You can see the preference for long-acting treatments on the far right there. Um, It's important to note that a lot of these patients entered these clinical trials, hoping possibly that they might be able to go on long-acting treatments, so they might be a little bit biased towards that. So what do the healthcare thinkers work? Well, let's get into that. So the first study we'll, we'll kind of talk about here is customized based out of the U.S. Um, it was a long acting recovering every two month implementation study. What I want to highlight here is just what they thought about the feasibility and some of the uh, uh, what they would consider concerns over the course of this study. So we'll see in the green bar is the baseline or month zero, the Kind of the purplish color is month four and blue is month 12. Uh, the feasibility in general is pretty high. And I've highlighted the um, the ease of administration for cabotegravir or You see there was some concerns up front and that got better with time. Similarly, on the right side, you can see some of the barriers that, that baseline in the green, there was a decent amount of percentage of barriers that were reported or, or concerns that they had. But over time, generally those lessened over the course of a year so that was in the us this is in the eu so carousel almost similar in terms of the design of of that study Um, what i'm highlighting here is the barriers reported at month one on the left and month five on the right and i specifically wanted to highlight the logistical barriers that they noted so uh, in the 50 percent range you can see staffing and scheduling and you know storage of the medicine visits um, things like that were about fifty percent of the time. What well, you'll notice on the right in month five is those logistical barriers, specific those specific barriers, again, lessened to about half half the proportion of, of responses in in that time frame. So again, it got better with time. Well, what about cabotegravir beer for prep? So this is an Im- implementation study pillar. It was a um, population of uh, men who have sex with men and trans women. And uh, these, are, these are, again, responses from healthcare workers with regards to capital for PrEP. You can see the AIM and the FIM, and that's acceptability and the feasibility. Those are implementation framework uh, measures. They were high on pretty much all the cords. What this, what this study was interesting is it looked at what they called high-volume sites and low-volume sites. And what you'll notice is the low-volume sites reported higher measures for AIM and FIM and my view on that is really that they had maybe larger capacity because they weren't as busy to maybe um, implement these long-acting treatments in a better way. So this gets into to, to really the meat of the whole talk. And that's what I'm going to call the constructs of long-acting implementation. So these, what, when you look at this, you're going to see this repeatedly throughout this talk. But when you look at this slide, your eyes, or at least my eyes, gravitate to that gray section at the very bottom. Patient expectation and selection. So, oftentimes, what we what we see is patients are very excited, right? They come in, they might want it. Uh, we, as providers, sometimes are very excited about the possibility of using long acting um, agents as well. But oftentimes, we need to take a step back, right? We want to look at how can we make sure that we mitigate any problems that long acting treatments, you know, you might uh, um, might occur during the course of somebody's long acting treatment course. So what we need to start is really in the big blue circle. So site logistics and readiness. If you don't really start from the bottom, think of it as a pyramid, right? If you don't have the base layer ready, you can't really progress up to the top. So we're gonna start with that. Within this site logistics and readiness, we have kind of what I'm calling four different boxes. we got the environment itself, so the clinic space and the staffing. We have the drug access and billing support. We have where do you store this drug? So the inventory management. And then we also have the workflow. How does a patient fit into the workflow of that clinic? Right. And every clinic is different. But throughout that process, you got to think about every single step along that way, right? And then most importantly, how are you going to track them afterwards and retain them in care? So we'll go through each one of those separately. So the first one, mainly about the environment, the rooms. What do you want in a good room for long acne treatments? You want a private space. You want a decent amount of space, right? You want the right supplies. So do you have an exam table, for example? Do you have access to two-inch needles, which are currently on back order and hard to find? So things things that you need to think about from, from, a, from a, a clinic standpoint. And then really importantly, which we'll keep talking about throughout the course of this talk, is staff. Do you have the right staff in pretty much all areas, areas of the patient's route throughout that long acting treatment course? And in doing that, how do you how do you train those staff and it provides some consistency across that whole process so that there's no gaps in care along the way. And then you got to think about where the workflow that is involved in this, And can your clinic feasibly scale it up to whatever level to whatever level you're desiring or at all, right? So first question I would ask myself is, can can we accommodate changes in our clinic schedules to even do long acting treatment right the second is do we have the staff currently to do some of the to actually implement those treatments in a, in the best way for the patient and then lastly at what rate can we can we scale up long acting treatments so on the last point i really wanted to do kind of like a pro forma document of sort so what i what i did here was i took a uh, mock clinic, right? So we have 500 HIV or people with HIV that are on treatment. and We have 50 patients that are on PrEP. And we're just going to assume that that base amount of people stays the same and 5% growth across the year, uh, each year over five years. So what you'll notice here, and I'm not going to go over the details of this graph, you can kind of look at it um, as you please, but then afterwards as well. In general, you get a an increase in 312 visits over five years. Okay. And when you think about that in terms of time, right, you have, let's just call it 30 minutes per visit, just on average, that's 156 hours that you're adding already on top of what you're currently used to. And if you make that in simple terms of a just a, pay, a standard, very controlled patient on oral therapy, that's about an increase equivalent of 142 patients over five years on oral treatment. So just to put it in perspective, what I'm not even including in this table is the amount of time that it takes to do benefit investigation, patient tracking, so trying to trying to get people in for you know, with transport and all kinds of other case management needs. Those um, time requirements we anticipate might require an additional 15 minutes per patient per week in just our very basic um, math. So things to think about when you're thinking about how do you scale this up in the best way. And then you have drug access and billing support. We have a whole section on this, right? So I'm gonna kind of briefly go over this, but I want you to think about it as an institutional um, process here. So first off, this is, this is mainly around our institution of what we had to think about going through. Does my institution have a formulary? Is the drug even on the formulary? Do we need to go through a process to even be able to order it? And then once you get past that, does your wholesaler actually carry it? You know, can you order it from the wholesaler if you're going to do buy and bill? And if you're not going to do buy and bill and you're going to do white bagging, does your institution even allow white bag products to come to your institution? Those are patient labeled. They come from a different place. Our institution does not. And then once you get past that, you got to think about your billing. Do you have the billing code set up correctly in in your EHR? And then you have all the staff and all the support that you need along the way to get that that accomplished. And then, from an EHR perspective, you got you got to think about how is there ways that we can use or leverage our EHR to maximize the efficiencies of the, the long acting treatment. Can you integrate certain functions or builds within the EHR to make that more of a smooth, uh, streamlined process? Then you got to think about storage. So, do you the simple question is: Do you have a refrigerator for a cab repiverine? Um, If you don't have that, you might have to go buy one. Right. So you got to think about those kind of things. And then on the inventory side, you if you're going to do buy bill, you got to think about, okay, at at what rate am I going to buy the drug? How am I going to keep track of the inventory to make sure that I have the drug there when the patient comes or needs to come? How many should I have on hand? What's your par level? And then if you're going to do both buy and bill and white bagging or patient assistance, those drugs come patient labeled specifically specifically for the patient. So you might have to keep two separate inventories. Do you have the capacity to keep those two separate inventories? All right. Second level of my constructs here is coverage and access. And the first uh, audience response question is right here. And I'll pause. Go ahead and take a few seconds to answer this. The question is drug coverage and access are the same thing. True or false? Right, everybody got it right. So let's go over that. So I kind of see coverage and access is two like completely different things, right? I, so I'm gonna call it level one and level two. Insurance coverage is generally good, but it comes with a lot of caveats, right? So on paper, you might look at, or online, you might look at the formula for a specific plan and it might say, uh, capital-tech and is covered, but you might have to do a prior auth, you might have to do step therapy, And that process can be time consuming and burdensome sometimes. So you you have to be aware of that, right? But that's only the first step. The second step is, can you actually get the drug? Is it feasible to to go that route or with that that specific medicine for the patient, for the facility, for the provider? Those are all questions you have to, to think about. And oftentimes the drug access piece comes into more of how the coverage is structured. Is it in a pharmacy benefit? Is it in a medical benefit? Where do you get the medicine? How does the plan determine uh, where you get the medicine? And those can all impact um, how, how, you, uh, how you access the drug for, for each patient specifically. So real quick here, this is my level one insurance coverage. Um, on the left, you'll see there's really, well, there's a divergence here. There's two routes really that you can go and maybe a third with one of So. On the left, you'll see manuf- that you can go through the manufacturer processes to do the in- initial insurance coverage determination. And really, um, on the Capitograviral Pivri and Cap for PrEP um, side, it's Vive Connect, and that's their, their program um, for those specific drugs. Um, and then that, that process you can do online or on paper. And then the manufacturer, they will they will do some of the coverage determination and give you a fax back that says it's covered as a pharmacy benefit or a medical benefit, and you can go through this route or that route, and this is the coverage, this is their deductible, this is their out-of-pocket, so it gives you all the details, right? And then you can present that to the patient and uh, decide whether it's right for them. On the right side, you can do more of the clinic-based focus, which is what we do as our, at our institution. So we have a whole department. That does this for us. They've already kind of been um, part of the process. We just added long-acting treatments from the HIV clinic into this process as well. It's really the same way, it's just who's taking responsibility of those processes. And then once you get all that, and maybe the patient decides we're gonna we're gonna go forward, then you can think about level two. This right here is just, I'll just leave it for more for references or resources for both um, companies' programs here. And with the links, you can look through those um, as you see fit. Uh, but this is level two. This is the drug access. And I, I note three, and I have a separate slide on the fourth. There's really four different routes or how to source the drug. So when you look at the left-hand side, we're going to talk about buy and bill. And basically basically what that is is your, your facility or your clinic buys the drug, and then you administer it, and you bill for it appropriately. The white bag and the alternative site are kind of the same thing. It's just really a difference of where the drug gets shipped. So a white bag product is when the clinic would order the drug to a specialty pharmacy. The specialty pharmacy does all the billing, some of the secondary coverage also, and then they would ship the drug to the clinic, and the clinic would administer the drug and bill for the administration of the drug. An alternative site is really using say like an infusion center or a different type of healthcare facility besides the clinic to um, administer the drug. And that, the, thing, the important thing to note here is on the buy and bill side of things on the far left, everything is done at one facility, right? It's a lot of work, but it's all done in one facility. On the right, on the drug itself is taken care of on the, on the coverage side by the pharmacy typically, and the site or the facility will bill for the administration. But when you bill it on the right side, you can be done as a pharmacy or a medical claim. And on buy and bill, it's only a medical claim. So you can look through that on your own as well. Uh, These are the pros and cons of these access channels. Really the difference, again, if you just compare buy and bill to the other routes is flexibility and inventory. And the downside really is if you do buy and bill, you take on financial risk of buying that drug and keeping it, in your clinic, so the cash flow could be an issue for, a, say, a, a private clinic, for example, that is much smaller and injured than, say, a big, large um, healthcare system. Uh, so the white bagging and alternative sites are really um, nice, or geared towards those smaller s- facilities where they may not have the staff or the financial means to take on all the the logistical processes of. Acquiring the drug on their own, doing all the coverage determination, billing for it, all that sort of thing, and then there's one fourth way called brown bagging, and I, I'm calling it the road best traveled. And honestly, I don't really know if there's anybody really that's that's done this. I'm sure, I'm sure, probably there has, but this is you can think of it just like white bagging, where the clinic will order the drug to the specialty pharmacy, but instead of the drug being mailed from the specialty pharmacy to the clinic or the alternative site. It gets mailed to the patient and then the drug is either administered at home or maybe the patient brings it to the clinic for administration. The pros of this really are that it's convenient for the patient potentially, right? They, ha- they don't have to travel. There's less time involved for them. Probably you can still build it in either benefit route and there's less like financial risk to the to the providing clinic itself. But the downside is the patient you, if you don't trust them with the drug, are they going to store it correctly? Are they going to accidentally enter? You know, just decide to inject it themselves? Um, you're dependent on them receiving the drug, so like delivery challenges, stuff like that. Those are important considerations and probably why most people don't go down this route. But I do want to highlight that at ID Week this year, abstract uh, 1027, they, um, this group looked at home injections of cabotegraviropivirum versus clinic. I have a summary of that in the, in the supplementary slides, but you can also look at the ID week information as well. And this is this slide right here is really to, to kind of compare the difference between a larger healthcare system and a private clinic and the differences between the two. So like my, my site, for example, large academic healthcare system, we have a lot of resources, a lot of staff that can help kind of pick up the slack where maybe a smaller clinic doesn't have that, right? And we pref- we prefer buy bill because it's just easier for us to do it that route. And where there's where there's risk, there's reward obviously. Um, and that has been a good thing for us. Alternatively, if you had a private clinic that doesn't have the, the staff power to really make all this happen, they might wanna remove some of the barriers along that long anti treatment process say, the coverage of determination part, the billing part for the medicine, and go through a white-bagging process, right? That might make more sense for them. And that way, they remove some of those barriers up front. And this, I really wanted to just kind of take a second and, and compare the difference between capotegravir or peverine and capotegravir versus glenicapavir in terms mainly of their distributor and specialty pharmacy network. What well, you'll notice on the top, on the top side of this for cabotegravir and rilpivirine versus lenacapavir is there's quite a few distributors available that you can order the product from, and there's also a very large uh, specialty pharmacy network if you're going to do white bagging. Alternatively, lenacapavir is what we would call a limited distribution um, network. So there's only really two. Uh, distributors that have access to the drug, and one specialty pharmacy that does their um, distribution of white bagging for lenacapavir. All right, we're going to move on to billing. So this is uh, this is the cost considerations with treatments, long acting treatments. So on the left, you have the Beyond trial, which was um, looking at cabotegravir ropivirin on a six six month ba- basis. And pillar I've I've kind of already talked about a little bit was for cabotegravir for prep. What you'll notice here is that on the left hand side, the reasons for missed injections were insurance and access related issues for cabotegravir/ropivacaine, and it even led to discontinuation of the product. So that's a little bit concerning. However, there is low numbers in just in total in there. On the right side, you can see that uh, these the sites that were providing uh, cabotegravir for prep on 50% occasion, they're they're concerned about the cost of the drug, which really leads to more of a patient expectation uh, mindset. And if you understand the billing side, the coverage determination and the billing side, you can give the patients a better expectation of what it might look like after they start, right? So I wanted to take a second and just talk about pharmacy and medical benefits. So really the main difference is when the cost sharing occurs. So on the pharmacy benefits, very similar to what you're used to with, say, an oral antiretroviral therapy. You send the prescription to a pharmacy, the pharmacy bills their their insurance through the pharmacy claim. They might have a copay card, for example, that picks up the secondary. And the patient walks out of there maybe with a zero copay and they don't know any different. Right. That's just uh, how how it works. So the adjudication of that claim happens in real time. Okay, On the medical side, it's a little bit different. It's a delayed Adjudication. So the patient receives the drug, and then they receive the bill later, right? So we can give them some sort of expectation of what that cost might be, but we can't give them to 100 certainty what it, what what it will be. So when you think about this, the patient's cost sharing is prior to administration on the pharmacy benefit and after administration on the medical benefit. But again, that's only just for the drug. So you got to think about is there a cost for the administration? Because that would come on the medical side potentially. Is there a cost for the visit itself? And do they even qualify for the savings program, uh, which all things you need to think about as you go through this process. So I wanted to look at the difference of cost for each of these treatments, and I'm not going to go over each one in particular. I do want to highlight that the um, oral lead-in for um, uh, cabotegravir and ropivirine um, whether it's for PrEP or treatment, is is free. And I have another slide on bridging that I can talk about um, here in a little bit as well. But if you just compare, if you look at the box on the bottom here, there's oral comparisons. If you look at BFTAF, for example, uh, compared to the every two-month um, Cabotegra-Virropeverine, it's uh, less than that for the cabotegra pivoting on an annual basis, right? And these are wholesale acquisition costs, which is just kind of think of it as a cash price. Uh, lenacapavir is kind of a one-off because um, normally you're going to have probably more treatments along with it, right? So this, we're, I'm just showing you the lenacapavir cost, which is kind of high. Um, so you'd expect other costs from either oral treatment or if they were doing something non-traditional like cabotegravir, rilpivirine, and lenacapavir, you'd have to add those together. And then on the prep side of things with cabotegravir, if you look at that uh, generic FTDF, is about $69 a month, so 800 on a cash uh, basis, which is considerably cheaper than both FTAF and um, uh, capital gear. Uh, These are some of the cost-sharing or secondary payer sources that that patients can utilize. Um, Both companies that make these products um, have very good programs for this. Um, on the top, you're going to see what's what's available for for commercially covered patients. So those that do not have federal coverage of any sort, so X, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, government insurance. There's no financial requirements, meaning you could you could have a, a income of 150,000 and and it wouldn't matter to use these programs. They additionally help with some of the administration costs on the um, for all of those products. Some are wrapped up into the the total benefit. And some of them are separate as a specific administration benefit. And you can see those there. And then on the bottom side, where we oftentimes run into issues is uh, for those that can't use traditional um, cost-sharing programs that, that we oftentimes utilize for commercial insurance. And that's that would be Medicare Part D in particular. Uh, and these three grant programs are available. You you all may be aware of them. Um, they're separate. Uh, applications that you can do online or in paper patients can do in them themselves actually, but there are financial requirements for that. And that's something you want to be cognizant of. If you had an uninsured patient, um, there's there's patient assistance programs that are available for all three of these products. Um, they, the financial requirements are less than 500% of the federal poverty level, um, which is dependent on the number of people in your household or dependents in your household. Um, and so you, you should look at those tables to decide whether somebody uh, meets those requirements. I will point out one thing um, below it, for uh, for cabotegravir, ropivirin, and cabotegravir, uh those that have Medicare Part D, if you pay up to $600 of your out-of-pocket, they will cover it under their patient assistance program. And so that's a benefit that oftentimes doesn't get talked about. Um, but... Again, the considerations for this program, you you don't have to be a citizen, but you have to live in the U.S. Um, You have to provide financial documentations, and these these products come labeled specifically for patients. It's important to know. Uh, These are the billing codes. I just want to highlight a couple things here. These J codes are specific to the products. There's a specific modifier called the modifier 33 for for PrEP, uh, specifically on the medical injection benefits. You can see that there. And then we now have a PREP ICD-10 code, which is right here, Z29.81 that was effective this quarter. And I'd probably try to use those um, codes as you can. And uh, the modifier 33 is specific to the US Prevention Services Task Force guidance. So I just wanted to touch on this real quick quickly because there's some um, grayness to it, I would say. Uh, in general, the task force recommends a grade A for, for HIV PrEP services. So what that means is they, they want people at risk for HIV to be on PrEP, and they're, but they're agnostic of the of the actual formulation itself. Um, but it gets a little gray here. So what you'll notice is that that may not totally mean zero cost sharing. So you'll see some of the, some of the uh, text here. They basically just say... That these guidelines are not used for payers to determine whether there should be cost uh, cost sharing or not. And if you go a little bit further, and you think about the the Affordable Care Act from several years back, they had changes to the task force guidance based on uh, based on the on the ACA. And what it said was basically that non-grandfathered commercial plans would have to provide uh, not only the the drug cost, but also the services, testing, the visits itself without cost sharing, but there's still a lot of inconsistencies on on PrEP coverages. Um, There's still step therapy where they'll require a generic FTDF and you won't be able to get the other ones without failing those, quote failing them, not necessarily in a clinical stance. And Medicare, it'll be really interesting to see how they determine uh, cabotegravir for PrEP as a As a medical benefit on Part B or as a pharmacy benefit on Part D. So still some questions there. And on on the treatment side, HIV treatment side, you have to think about state ADAP programs. So ADAPs are AIDS drug assistance programs. They're a bucket of the Ryan White federal monies. Um, You can see on the top box here that the the formularies for uh, cabotegravir, ropivirin, and linacapivir uh, but it's really only the first part. It's very much like the drug access piece from before. ADAPs will say that they cover it, but a lot of times, I'm going to use Nebraska, my my home state, as an example. A lot of times, it's only the first step. So, if we're talking about Nebraska, they say yes, we cover cabotegravir and But if 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 they are providing cot sharing, they want to make sure that they can use the 340B leverage. And I don't want to I don't want to push a negative light on that, but it's it's important to recognize that um, it's not always covered, even though it may state that in um, in the ADAPs um, formulary processes. So when I'm talking about 340B, and I know it's a complex process, um, I, I figured I better talk about it real quick. So this is a 340B for beginners, or maybe for advanced beginners. So really, the difference here is there's a bunch of different types of covered entities that could be that could qualify for 340B and basically when you qualify for 340B you can receive um you can buy medicines at a cheaper cost than normal so there's a discount on the cost right and still be able to bill the for the drug at the same rate so in in essence you get a larger margin right how covered entities are are um determined is basically they provide care for underserved patients right so the larger margins are supposed to go to subsidized care for even those that are uninsured, right? Well, ADAPs are a grant type entity for 340B, which means that they have a dual. They're the only, pretty much the only covered entity type that can have a dual mechanism where they can get rebates after the fact, or they can do a direct purchase on their own pharmacy or a contract pharmacy. And the amount of the re- the amount of the discount can be quite substantial. So you'll see, like a dish hospital. In a large healthcare system might get a 34% discount, and ADAP would get a, a, a 60% discount on average. So it can be quite uh, um, beneficial for those programs. So here's the complex version, and I'm just going to use cabotegravir and as an example, but you have a private clinic on the left and you have a, we'll just call it a, a, a DISH or Ryan White clinic on the right. Uh, and for the sake of comparisons purposes, we'll talk about both pharmacy and medical benefits uh, for both. In this case, you'd, you'd bill whatever the, the commercial payer is, the patient will have some cost sharing, ADAP would help with that cost sharing. And on the left side, let's focus on the left, there is no 340B buying of that drug. So what that means is that ADAP can collect the 340B savings in either way, so as a rebate or a direct purchase. On the right side, it gets a little bit of a maybe question, and you'll see that with the yellow arrow. If the, if the contract pharmacy, in this case, especially pharmacy that mails a drug in a white bagging situation, is not a contract pharmacy for the, the primary clinic, then the ADAP can, in this case, probably submit for 340B savings. But if they are a contract pharmacy, then they cannot, and they would lose out on that benefit. Unfortunately, it just so happens that a lot of times this very far right side is what happens on most occasions, and because is the payer last source, they aren't able to get the full benefit of that. And so that's that can that can uh, change how they determine long after treatment coverage. Next, we'll move on to the administration and patient tracking. Um, I wanted to start with the Beyond um, study again, and what you'll notice here is just the amount of missed injections. Um, There's low numbers here, so take this with a grain of salt, but there was a lot of unplanned missed injections, and a lot of times it was due to insurance coverage or out-of-pocket costs. So, again, the cost keep coming back is an important consideration. Um, When you're thinking about patient tracking administration, ways to mitigate that, again, is by preparation. And staff training is probably paramount. Uh, It's probably the first thing, right? Once you have your processes in place, you should train your staff so there's consistencies across those staff members. And that includes across the whole process. So billing workflows. How do you store the drug? How do you receive the drug? How do you administer it? Do we have supplies available? What's the treatment schedule? What days do we bring them in? Is there a certain day? How do you troubleshoot missed injections? What do you do if somebody misses and you can't find them? There's a lot of things to consider here. And on the patient support side or, or the tracking, how are you best going to do that? Is it going to be tracked on a daily, weekly, a monthly basis? What do you do if somebody misses a window, an injection window? Uh, do you have inventory available? Do you even give it to them? What if they're a patient assistance program and the drug hasn't come yet, but they want to come in and uh, they're gonna be late for their injection? So do you how do you how do you manage those situations? Do these patients need more? transportation support so they can get to the clinic for the injections. All kinds of questions to consider. So this was a pooled, pooled study from ID Week this year that looked at ebony and pillar, which are two cabotegravir for PrEP uh, studies. And you'll see on the left how the clinics plan to track patients. And then most notably, they used the spreadsheet. That was what they they thought they would use, which is fine if it works for that clinic, Or they would assign specific staff or create alerts and EHRs. On the right side is the type of visits they're going to offer their patients. That is injection only or appointments each day, um, appointments certain days of the week. So you can kind of see what these clinics were doing. But planning, again, is very important when you're thinking about this. So what if somebody misses a, a window, right? What do we do to bridge? So I'm going to start with the prep side with cabotegravir. Um, they, if, if you're past seven days, if you're past your, your injection window, um, you can use cabotegravir, oral, um, oral cabotegravir. It's available through Theracom for free. The timeline on when that comes to you is going to be dependent on when you see this patient might miss, right? So that it's dependent on the patient a little bit. Um, you could also use an oral PrEP agent. So F tenofovir of, of whatever sort on the cabotegravir recovery side, you could use any HIV, um, in therapy. Um, those, you know, the, the notable one to me is deletegravir and because it's the oral somewhat equivalent of the injectable form that's co-formulated into one drug, but you, you cannot use that with a uh, proton pump inhibitors. You got to be cognizant of that. And then on the linocapavir side, um, remember that's a longer every six month injection. If you get past 28 weeks, you really should restart with the, uh, the oral uh, induction phase of the treatment. There's two options there. You can see those there. And then there's a recent study at IAS from this summer that looked at weekly lenacapavir uh, dosing orally, which you could consider that as well. And then you have other things that could go wrong. So in this case, I wanted to talk about transitions of care. What if somebody gets hospitalized hospitalized and needs their injection while they're in the hospital? Does the hospital itself have access to the drug? Can you get it? Is it non-formulary? Could you bring it from home? Would they allow that? There's all these things you gotta consider when you're thinking about this. And one that I don't have on here is travel overseas, which is an important thing that's come up in our clinic. How do you mitigate the problems that could be involved with that? And then insurance changes. What happens if somebody misses, or they change their job in the middle of the year and their insurance changes, or for some reason the insurance just decides we're not gonna cover this drug anymore. Um, those are potential problems, and every start of the year, there's always problems with drug coverage typically, so you have to be cognizant of that, right? Our EHR can track which, when, when drugs are not covered, so that's, that's pretty nice. Um, how quickly we know that, I'm not actually sure right now, but um, I've been told that we can we know when, when there might be a problem from a coverage standpoint when somebody's already been covered. So I have a case. This is a case from our clinic. It's a preparation of ours. He was 35 um, when he entered our care. Uh, he started on daily FTDF. You can see he had about 10 partners per you know per quarter. Most of it was condomless. He had heavy immunity and otherwise normal safety uh, labs. Uh, he's, he continued FTDF through the summer of 23, but he really wanted to go on uh, long acting cabotegravir. Um, we ended up transitioning him on June of this year and he wanted to skip the oral he in uh but then two weeks later he reported he's changing his job and uh his next dose was due july 10th uh, plus or minus the seven day window and uh, his insurance was going to end at the end of july so we still had coverage on for the next for the next injection but his new insurance plan wasn't going to start until october of this year so next audience response question how would you handle this i'll give you a few seconds to uh to consider your response. So would you change to a long-term oral prep agent? Would you change uh, to an oral prep uh, option until you know the coverage for long acting is restored? Or would you continue with a patient assistance program or you really have no idea? All right, let's see the response here. All right, so a nice mix of, of options here. I'm going to go through each of these specifically. So. All right, so you could transition back to oral prep. Whether it's in a long-term fashion or more transitory, you know, I think it depends on the case itself. You could access oral You can get up to two months free through Theracom, which is just call them up and order it, and they'll send it to you. And that can be sent to the patient or to the clinic. You could give somebody oral um, uh, tenofovir products so this patient in particular had 90 days of ftdf but he really wanted to stay on long-acting cabotegravir you could go through other assistance networks so he's technically uninsured in this case and he was under the limits for patient assistance so we ended up going that route and that was a feasible route to go but as you'll see in this next slide it wasn't it didn't come without cost so You'll see the the second row there is his first shot. The second or the third is his second shot, and then the fourth row there is was the next one after that. And he was approved for free drug, but he still had cost of lab, cost of the injection, which amounted to four hundred seven bucks. So he he also had thirty five percent discount based on his his financial status through our hospital for some of these costs. So that's important to note that it could have been higher. And then it got better. Then he said, oh, I'm changing my jobs again and I won't be eligible until January. And what that meant to us was, okay, we got him covered through the patient assistance. That's that's good. He was okay with the costs around that. Uh, But really by the time January one hits, we have a two week window to really get it covered. Um, Thankfully, the patient assistance program will probably continue throughout that process, but it might be a tight window consider. All right. And finally, we're on the patient selection and expectation, which, again, is a very important thing, but probably should be the last part that we consider. And in the essence of time, I'm going to skip this this slide right here uh, and just go to kind of some of the basic highlights of what what criteria you should think about for each of these products. And I'm not going to go over these in detail because they're probably... Um, talked about quite a bit in the other talks, but in addition to that, I would say one of, for me personally, is somebody's ability to historically keep appointments is really important. And specifically, I, I want to know does somebody no-show, right? And how often do they no-show? That's that's a, kind of a key factor for me, almost like an adherence metric. So I did an experiment. I just asked the people in our clinic. I said, Hey, what what criteria do you think is most relevant for long acting treatments? And let's rank those and let's weight them and let's come up with some kind of quantitative score to remove the qualitative aspect of who should get the medicine. And this is what I came up with. So you can see our criteria here as a clinic. I just arbitrarily weighted them and I made arbitrary thresholds, but any clinic can do this right. And you can do this more of like a, a very quick, like, does this person check, check the boxes or not? And it might help you. It might make it more burdensome, but, It's something that I thought about in the moment and I I think it could be helpful. So patient expectations are really, really important. And I think if we can educate the patient appropriately at the beginning, it'll mitigate a lot of problems that could happen in the future, right? So planning, again, is very important. Treatment support, very important. The education part, very important. And if we can do that, we can have a positive experience all the way through. We can have good adherence, visit adherence throughout that process. And in doing all that, We can mitigate any problems in the future which is really important as well so here is my last slide and it's the keys to uh, implementation of long-acting treatments number one get some processes in order develop some flow charts and if there's some the reason for this is really to provide some consistency across staff members right and if somebody's gone for the day or maybe they're on leave somebody can easily pick that up and know exactly what needs to be done uh, not only for specific patients, but across the long-acting treatment program as a whole. Establish some billing support people. And that goes for coverage determination and billing of the drug itself, or, or the actual visit too. Whether that is a champion within the clinic that's gonna take that responsibility or a whole department within your facility, I think it just depends on the site itself. Uh, but those are considerations to think about too. And then you got to think about access channels. Are they open? Can you order it if you're going to do buy and bill? Do you have a problem with white bagging at a, at the facility level? You got to think about those. It's still an inter- interdisciplinary approach, right? You want to have pretty much all stakeholders involved, including case management to help pick up any needs that patients have on transportation or housing or whatever it might be to minimize any problems in the future. If you can implement EHR uh, support early, that's really critical because um, they can have specific builds to track patients, develop reminders. Um, you can have treatment plan builds like, like we have. Um, so it's it's really important to see if, what the capacity of your EHR is. And lastly, you want to make sure that the program is feasible. Does it does does it actually recoup, you know, the, the cost of doing it right? And so for that, you want to make sure that somebody on the business side is involved as well. And if you can leverage your 340B status, with that, I'm right on target, and I'll open it up to questions.
0: Well done, Josh. That was great, um, and finishing right on time, and even wearing a nice shirt with a collar, as I can see.
1: I took your I took your advice.
0: I know. I told them don't come in a t-shirt. So. <laughs> uh, I think that last comment, I just wanted to add something, which I know is complicated, but for those of us who work in academic medical centers or other clinics that are part of a hospital setup, some of what Josh just said also means uh, trying to negotiate with your hospital about sharing in the, um, the rebates or reimbursement that you can get from using this, What you don't want to end up happening is that your hospital pharmacy reaps all of the rebate dollars, all of the, you know, the income they can get from using these expensive products and you in the clinic having to, you know, maybe pay extra for a nurse to manage it or other people to to actually do the work are not sharing in that. And that's complicated and difficult, but I do think it's important to think about and much easier to negotiate before you start doing it, because once the hospital starts getting the money, they're gonna be much less likely to share it with you. But anyway, um, we do have a few questions. I think this was a lot of information. So most people are probably just trying to digest it, but some of them I think are excellent. And so I'm gonna start with the first one, which I think is close to your heart about feasibility and or safety of administering the injections, this is for treatment, uh, in a location outside the clinic. So we're talking about community pharmacy or even home administration. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, in the capacity of HIV treatment or prevention or both? Or does it treatment? treatment? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would answer it in terms of um, both, both treatment types, honestly. I, I think there's a huge element of um, meeting the patient where they're at, right? And if we can find a way to provide these treatments in a way that is uh, best for them that might eliminate other structural barriers like mistrust within the system you know they might see somebody in the in the clinic waiting room that they don't want to see stigma and you know, all that kind of stuff if there's a way that we can make patients more comfortable and and if, if that would lead to treatment success then I think that's good you know notably you know I'm a pharmacist right so I'm always going to think about the pharmacy first can we provide these treatments in the pharmacy? And I, I would say yes. And I, I do know of programs that are already doing that. I know there's some studies going on that's looking at that as well. Uh, so it's, it's in my view, it's definitely feasible uh, to to take the treatments out of the clinic and still be able to provide it in a good way as long as some of this planning is, is done well.
0: Yeah, and I think there has been a report of some um, injections provided at home too Yes. uh, In a small study, which I can't remember where it was, but it was successful, but it's very, you know, uh, cost expensive. I mean, they're going to have to hire somebody to go driving around doing this, and I'm not sure that's really feasible. Um, Whether people can self-administer is yet to be determined, but there isn't anything right now to say that we can do that. Okay, so... um, then one of the questions here is about the clinic infrastructure logistics with the lab issues. And so I think this probably talking about prevention, but the CDC guideline around viral load testing is creating a significant barrier for a number of clinics. So people don't want to, um, you you know, not comply with CDC guidelines, but getting viral load testing is very expensive. I'm assuming for the prevention aspect of things. And so I don't know if you have any special comments on that, Josh.
1: Yeah. Um so I'll, I'll be honest. We we as a clinic have been slow to adopt um yeah. cabitare beer. But yeah. I mean it, I think we, we want to do it right. And I think that's that's the key point. And cost is certainly um force first and foremost in a lot of patients' minds. You know that with oral therapies, it was the last thing that I worried about and the first thing that patients worried about. Yeah. I think when you're thinking about long acting treatments, specifically with, um, the prep and the differences in HIV RNA testing around that, that can get pricey. Right. And yep. ultimately it comes down to the patient individually. Can they, you know, do they understand that? Can they, can they, uh, swallow that cost? Um, if it, if it relates to, you know, a big sum and then, um, uh, a lot of times it just depends on their, their structure, their plan. Do they have a high deductible plan? Is it a percentage copay? Stuff like that. So yep. it just depends. Yeah. So
0: um, that reminds me of a question I was going to ask you. You know, So when people come in and either on prevention or on treatment and they say I'm interested in getting these injections, one of the things that they often want to know is how much is this is going to cost me. And It's quite difficult to be able to answer that question in my experience. And so sometimes, you know, you're obviously you're there to help me, but sometimes it comes down to kind of running a dummy prescription through their insurance and seeing what comes back again. But do you have any guidance for our audience about how to give people some idea of what it might cost them to switch from a daily oral regimen to injections? Just say, don't talk about treatment. For example, how do we, how do we work that out?
1: Yeah, I think, I think really the the answer is no, really. But, but I would say that the best, the best thing in my view is to have a really good process in the coverage determination um, at the very beginning, right? Because you can kind of give patients reasonable expectations of what things might cost based on um, what the insurance comes back with. And a lot of times the patient savings programs that are available will help considerably to minimize the total cost sharing that somebody would have. But more often than not, it means that the patients could potentially pay more, right, than they're used to. And that's important for them to understand.
0: Yep, completely agree. Okay, one other quick one uh, about what to do if you end up with a a supply of long-acting cab sitting on the shelf because people who thought they wanted it for pre- prevention don't for whatever reason and these um supplies accumulate you know what can you do with them
1: well i would say get a better handle on the inventory management process i mean that's that's where the planning comes in 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 well right i mean if you're looking if you're using a power level and you're not over ordering then hopefully you would never get to that point yeah. but it, I can see where, if you got really excited, ordered a bunch of product, and then, you know, people didn't follow through like you anticipated, that could be a problem for sure.
0: Yep, yep. And then there was a comment at the end about um, inequities or racial disparities with prep update because of getting making it more complicated. That like with the testing is that going to make it worse? And that was something that was shared by. Uh, Dr. Kelly, when she was talking about um, exactly this topic to begin with, and uh, her concern.
1: Yeah, equitable. Equ- yeah, I'll go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, if, make a comment if you want to, but then we'll move on.
1: Yeah, equitable access is is inherently a little bit tougher because of the complexities that, that are around that, right? But yep. again, if we if we uh, do a good job of reasonably giving patients good expectations, then. You, we we should be successful.
0: Yeah, let's hope. But I know it worries all of us. But thank you, thank you so much. This was a terrific talk.